Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4 through reads this, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Now every opportunity I've had for the last year to, to preach to you, I've just come to you with Colossians. That's what we went through in CCF. And so that's what I come with you this morning. And I've, I've told you, especially if we've been in chapter 3, uh, that the whole entire book is about the sufficiency of Christ. The supremacy of Christ, even if you will. But particularly, chapters uh, 3 through 4 speak more of our submission to Christ. Chapter 3 unfolds, Paul unfolds to us really what's happened when you've been saved. You've been raised up spiritually from death, and you've been given new life in Christ. And so Paul unfolds in this chapter how to live, how to live the, the Christian life, how to live as a believer. It's simply that. He is telling you in verses 1-4 through that you have been raised up with Christ. And not only just that you've been raised from the dead spiritually, but even in some incredible way that we don't have time to go into, He has raised you up into heaven with Himself. And then in some mystical way, you're in heaven with the Lord, and yet you remain on earth. And so Colossians chapter 3 is calling for you and I to live out our heavenly life in an earthly context. Colossians chapter 3 is telling you how to live a glorified life in an unglorified world, in an unglorified setting. And so you kind of expect that Paul, as he expounds on this incredible mystical union with Christ, that you who are on earth are actually somehow in heaven. You would expect that his commands and his imperatives, his exhortations to you, would somehow be mystical and mystifying and supernatural and profound. You would expect some Gnostic wisdom, something that is lofty, something that can only be spoken in the tongues of angels, something that is profound, that comes to you in a vision, that comes to you in a dream. Yet that is not how the Bible speaks to us, and that is not how the Apostle Paul comes to you and I. But he comes to us with very humble, very specific, very earthy commands. Commands that instruct us how to live the glorified life in an earthly context, and yet these imperatives themselves, they're earthly He explains to you and I how to live for Christ by submitting to our parents. He explains how you and I should live to Christ by putting to death our our lustful flesh, by putting to death our our immoral tensions, our immoral desires. He tells you and I to live the glorified life by forgiving one another, by loving one another, by speaking truth, by not lying. He moves on and he tells wives, to be subject to their husbands, and wives and husbands to love their wives. And as I said, he tells also children, children obey your parents. These are not lofty, these are not lofty supernatural commands. These are very earthy in an earthly context. That's the calling of Christ. That's the glorified life right now. And this morning we're just going to proceed on in chapter three. And we're going to come to some more, if you will, some some more mundane exhortations. In fact, Colossians chapter 3, out of its 25 verses, gives us 17 imperatives, 17 commands. In other words, statistically, there's, there's eight verses that lack a command. And so verse after verse after verse after verse, there's a command for this, there's a command for that, there's a command for this, there's a command for that. Paul is constantly bombarding us with exhortations and imperatives. And so I ask you again, I asked this before, do you get tired of God's commands? Do you get tired of being bombarded with someone telling you how you're supposed to live your life? Because that's what God's Word does. And this morning we're going to look at some more. And yet even as I've thought about this in the past, perhaps the dangers of constantly being exhorted without the reminders of why we are exhorted would lead us to some sort of apathy, would lead us to listening to God's imperatives without being mindful of His good intentions behind them. I want to remind you this morning that the very fact that we are exhorted reminds us that we are saved and that God's commandments are not burdensome, but rather they are proofs of His love and of His concern for you and I. 
Have you guys ever seen a neglected child? Uh, Pastor James has told you about some of these foster children who have been neglected and they're brought in by other families. Have you seen a child dirty and unkept, running around screaming and crying? A neglected child will often be left for days, unchanged, wearing the same sewage-filled diaper. The neglecting parent will leave the child in its own filth, sometimes just leaving him in the crib. The child is hungry. The child is unkept. And not only needing physical hygiene, not only needing its diapers changed, but needing some affection needing some compassion, needing the, the loving affection of a mother, the tender cares, the tender touch. And so this child starving and screaming for not only physical attention, but affection, this child will scream its head off. Until what? Until the unloving mother will come in and she will slap the child and she will scream back at it, abusing it and neglecting it. Likewise, the world is like a neglected and abused child. It sits in the hand of the evil one. Its father is the devil. The world sits in its own filth, unchanged, unloved, uncared for by its worldly father. But, but not you. You have a different father. The scriptures tell us, tell you and I, that we have a new father. That your Father has called you with an everlasting call. He has loved you with an everlasting love. He came to you in your nakedness, in your filth, in your neglect, and He washed you and He clothed you and He gave you affection and attention. He has loved you and He has nourished you. And in His love and in His compassion for you, He has given you and I, in this holy book, His guidelines and His commands and His imperatives for your good. He has disciplined you for your good, that you might be kept from harm's way, from the flames of hell, from the devil who seeks to devour your faith and to steal you away back into the darkness. When the child protective services take away the abused child, the parent often goes into a rage. The parent will stop at nothing to get the child back, not because all of a sudden she realizes that she loves the child, but because a rage unfolds in her heart. And she is full of bitter wrath and anger towards those who would steal her child from her, exposing her sinful neglect, exposing her lack of love. And she will stop at nothing to try and find the child. She will stop at nothing to try and hunt down where the child is. And if she will, she will seek to kidnap the child. She will steal him away. She will take him back and she will neglect him all the more. And likewise it is with her old earthly father, Satan, He would love to steal you out of the Father's hand. He loathes the good hand of God shown towards you and I. He knows that soon he will be cast into the lake of fire and he fights against the will of God with vicious hatred, manifesting his fierce rage upon the redeemed of God. Satan despises that God has shown you his goodness and if he can and if he could, he would steal you from the safety of God. He will wait until you are in the front lawn playing, enjoying yourself. He will wait until you disregard the good commands of God who said, My son, my daughter, stay within my view. Stay within the boundaries. Stay within the perimeter that I have set up for you. Stay within the the scriptural fence. Within the holy yard, the holy playground, if you will. Stay inside the confines of the compound and you will be safe. But you leave the area. You leave the confines of God's safety. And you proceed down the sidewalk into the shady part of the neighborhood to the places your father has forbid you to go. And the devil, your old father, he will wait there for you and he will throw a blanket over your head and he will cast you into his trunk and he will drive away to torment you and to abuse you. Which he is able to do only if you live in disregard to the good commands of God. That's a picture of the imperatives. That is a a picture of the safety nets. That is a picture of why God implores us to obey Him. The Word of God is a gift of love and its commandments are His arms and His hands around you. And so we read this morning as we move on to these mundane imperatives. In verse 22 of Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes this, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, 
but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and now without partiality. He concludes, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That's our text this morning. And I just want to simply take us through it this morning. Our first point is very simple. It's simply obey your masters. Obey your masters. The command for Christians to be submissive and obedient to those who are over us in this life has a higher calling than merely cowering to the powers and the authority of other men. We submit to other men first and foremost because Christ has commanded us to. It is Christ who in submission to His own Father humbled Himself. He humbled Himself before men. It was Christ who could have crucified the Pharisees upon crosses of blazing bronze and with nails of lightning. But on the contrary, He allowed Himself to be placed upon a cross of wood. The call for the slave to submit to another man has a higher calling in view. Freedom in Christ is lived out in freedom from sin. It is lived out in the joy of the Holy Spirit, but it does not free us from the responsibilities of life nor from God's sovereign will and plan for us. Some want to argue that the Bible is oppressive. Some would like to argue that this this text, that Paul is condoning slavery, that's what America did, right? They used this text to use it for their own evil purposes. And so those against God, and his scriptures say, this is ungodly, this is, this is not right. God is a tyrant and so is his word and so is his apostle. They accuse Paul of being a coward for not opposing and condemning slavery. They themselves are advocates of freedom, for the freedom of all men, for the freedom of all creatures. The Bible is nothing more than a man-made, egocentric decree used by oppressive, self-serving tyrants who are the suppress others. But they missed the entire point. They missed the entire context. They missed the entire heart of the Scriptures. The world seeks physical freedom while they are spiritually slaves to sin. They are like the Hebrews in Egypt who fought each other, but they would not fight the Egyptians. They're like those in a concentration camp who are willing to fight to death over a piece of bread, but are unwilling to plan their escape. It is a cruel irony, it is bitter sarcasm. While the world feasts and parties and ramrods against the commands of Scriptures, it is really the slave of Christ who is free. It is the slave of Christ who is free. The Scriptures are full of divine paradox. To become one, to become strong, you must become weak. You must become a fool to become wise. The Christian is a slave, though he is free. He is a free, though he is a slave. He is a slave to no one, yet he must become all things to all men. He must be a slave to all. He lives his life as if he were helpless, yet labors as if he were all-powerful. He prays as if he can do nothing, and yet toils as if he can do everything. He sins, though he is made perfect. He weeps, though he is full of joy. He is patient in sanctification, though he yearns for the return of Christ. And he is humble before all, though he is exalted with the right hand of the Father. The world cannot understand this text this morning. And neither will you unless you understand and are mindful and are reminded that as the Father demanded and called His Christ to an incredible amount of submission and self-sacrifice. He calls you and I, He may call and He will call you and I to do similar. But I need to come back to our context. Come back to our context this morning. Paul wrote this command to the Colossians. When Paul was writing this letter, he had the Colossians in mind. He knew that it was binding upon more than the Colossians. What he didn't understand, he did not have in mind Cornerstone Bible Church, right? He did not have in mind 21st century Orange County. He did not have in mind a group of people sitting under the 1800s Emancipation Proclamation by Abraham Lincoln. He did not know that would take place. 
He was writing to a specific people in a specific context. Paul wrote to a church steeped in the midst of a society that literally thrived on slave labor. The church there no doubt had slaves in it. It was immediately and specifically applicable to slaves who were under cruel masters, slaves who had gracious masters, slaves who were treated like dogs, slaves who were treated like sons, and yet Paul says there is no distinction. Every slave is to submit to his master. Some commentators question why Paul wrote more about slaves than he does about husbands, than he does about wives, than he does about children, than he does about parents. And some believe it's because as Paul was writing this letter, sitting right to his side, was this runaway slave Onesimus. Onesimus had run away from his master Philemon. He found himself before the Apostle Paul. Paul shares the gospel with this young runaway slave and he is converted mightily by the gospel and he becomes the right-hand man of Paul, zealous for the truth. He becomes an evangelist for Paul. And so Paul, writing even with his beloved son in the faith next to him, writes this letter. And simultaneously, as he writes Colossians, maybe before or maybe after, he writes the small epistle of Philemon. And he sends the letter of Philemon, and some believe he even sends it back with Philemon himself. I mean, he sends it back with Onesimus himself to his master Philemon. And so here, the Apostle Paul, with his own beloved son in mind, commands slaves to be submissive to their masters. But what does this have to do with Cornerstone Bible Church? Where are the slaves in this room? Raise your hand if you're a slave. None will raise his hand. There are no slaves in this room. We are all under the abolition. We are all freedmen. But the application is immediate and appropriate for all in this room today. Whether as an employee or a student, a stay-at-home mom, a working father, a working mother even with her own children, whether you are a teenage son, a teenage daughter, this text has principles for you and I. We are all slaves in some sense to someone. And though we have the right here to fight for freedom, though we have the right to protest for change, though we have the right to to quit our jobs when we're mistreated, we do not have the right to disregard the principles of this text. Slaves in all things obey those who are masters on earth. Paul says in all things. That's a comprehensive term. It refers to things both enjoyable and things both distasteful. He says, furthermore, with the command, obey. And the Greek shows that this is to be a habit of life. And this habitual obedience, despite any context or circumstance, he says, obey those who are your masters on earth. Literally, he says, obey those who are your masters according to the flesh. The Bible is literally calling for slaves, some who may have been stolen, who were kidnapped, who were in some sort of underground slave train. He says you need to submit to your masters, just like Joseph, stolen from his own family, sold into slavery. You need to submit like Joseph. Apostle Paul doesn't say run. He doesn't say fight. He says submit. Why don't you turn briefly, turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Peter writes this, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if there is, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently, you endure it, this finds favor with God. Go back to verse 18. It's that word unreasonable. That is a, a tremendous word. Unreasonable in the NAS. The ESV says unjust. The Greek word is skolios. Skolios. It means crooked. It means swag- swaggering. And this word is, is transliterated from which we have diagnosed the disease scoliosis, the curvature of the spine. Paul says even those masters who are they're twisted, they're almost perverted, he says you need to submit to them. You need to submit to a master who is 
spiritual scoliosis, who treats you with indignation. And yet Paul goes even deeper than mere obedience to an earthly master. And the light of dawn quickly arises in this text when he alludes and he says, according to the flesh. That is, there are some who are over you, but they are only over your flesh. They may own your body, but they do not have your mind. They have not your heart. They have not your soul or your life or your eternity. And so Paul begins to exhort why we should submit to our earthly masters, not with external service as those who merely please men, but what? With a sincere heart, with a fear of the Lord. And so here Paul tells us the manner, the manner in which we are to obey these masters. Verse 22, Obey without eye service. Obey without eye service. Not with external service as those who merely please men. This is the first time that this word is found. This, this word eye service is the, the first time it's found in Greek literature. And many, many authors, many commentators believe that the Apostle Paul made up this word. Eye service, man pleaser. It's two words, literally I and, and from the doulos. It's an eye slave. Paul says, do not be an eye slave. One who is the slave to the eyes of another. And so the context is understandable. Paul is confronting slaves who work hard only when their masters are watching. It is the one who wants to look good while the master is looking on. And there is an invisible conjunction. There is an invisible completion to the sentence. It is the one who wants to look good while the master's eye is gazing, but... When the master is not looking on, he is lazy and he is a sluggard. One commentator said, The master's eye usually stimulates to greater diligence, while his absence, on the other hand, renders him sluggish. We can all understand that, right? Immediately we are, we are left unwondering. And now we understand how we can apply this to ourselves. Here it is this morning. You and I must continually be reminded of the omnipresent eyes of Christ. Is he ever not looking? Are his eyes ever resting from examining your life? We know the answer. At the moment of the fall, Adam and Eve sought to hide and cover their naked bodies. From who? From God. They sought to cover themselves and clothe their nakedness because they were ashamed before one another and they were ashamed before the Lord. And since that time, men have fooled themselves into thinking that cotton polyester blend hides their nakedness from God and that four walls and a ceiling hides their deeds from Him. And yet the Bible says that Christ sees it all. And in our text this morning, He is chiefly concerned with your work that you've been given to do all. Be reminded this morning, saint, that the work given by the earthly master is the work given by the Lord. This is the work given to you by the Lord, that you are to do all of your work. This is so applicable this morning that you in some sense have a master. You are called to submit to your employer. As an employee, though you are not a slave, so to speak, but you are a servant, you are called to submit to the tasks. You know, even Justin's testimony, his own father was his master. His father demanded of him, he said if he wanted to keep his job, he must leave the confines of his pleasure, leave the confines of his life, submitting himself to his father's will and traveling. And in that obedience, though it was the farthest desire from his heart, in that obedience, the mercy and the goodness of God was unfolded. So it is in the Scriptures. Submitting yourself and subjecting yourself to ungodly men, even, even ungodly bosses and employers. Paul says if you will submit to the Word of God in this area, you will find blessing, you will find joy. We are not to be those, you understand this morning, who are those who are, who are eye-pleasers. Alright? Eye-pleasers. You know what eye-pleasers are. We saw eye-pleasers last week when we were playing soccer. Alright, last week we were playing. It's the single men against the married men. And you know who won? The single men. They won. You know why they won? Because they're single and there was single women there. See, all the married men, they don't have to play that hard because they're already married. They don't have anyone to impress. But all the single men, they're playing their guts out. As soon as those single women start cheering, all the single men start playing like Pele. Alright? So, brothers, let me ask you, were you guys playing to serve the Lord? Or were you playing? No? Alright? You guys are man-pleasers. Alright? 
So if we play today, you know, all our wives, you guys show up and the rage will ensue and we'll show the single men. All right? But, uh, you know, putting our joking aside, the Lord is looking into our hearts. He is examining, He is scrutinizing all of our attitudes, all of our actions, all of our motives. Every single one of you in here has a boss. Who are you doing your work for? What are your motives? Maybe this will connect with some of you. And there's two ways that you can maybe look at this. You know, you're simply a lazy man. You simply just don't work that hard. You're simply not doing your tasks for the Lord. But when your boss shows up, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're looking busy. As soon as he's gone, it's back to the email. Oh, it's back to SMS. It's back to, you know, uh, MSN Messenger or whatever. But it's not your boss's eyes that are to be upon you that should cause fear. It's, it's the eyes of the Lord. Or maybe there's another way. Maybe there's another way. Maybe it's at, at first, at first you do work diligently. You are working hard for a while. And yet your job is beginning to become mundane. You're beginning to become lax. You know how it is when you first get hired. You're nervous. First couple days, there's a lot of tension. First couple weeks, you're learning a new program. You know, you're learning who the people are. But slowly you get tired. Slowly you get lax in your work. Slowly that you begin to forget that what God is calling you to do is to live out the glorified heavenly life in a mundane earthly context. That's why we have these simple commands this morning. Apostle Paul, the Word of God, is getting into the nooks and crannies of your heart in a way that no one else can get into. Are you a man pleaser? Are you a slave to the eyes of men? Do you lust and crave that others would think more highly of you than you really are? And we all struggle with this. We all struggle with this, not only in the workplace, but we struggle with impure motives even in the church. Serving. Being fervent in our ministry. And yet, the Lord is asking us to examine our hearts this morning. Why? Why do we do these things? Even in our small group times when we're sharing, are are we tweaking the reality of our own life? Are we tweaking our struggles so that others would think that we're better and more righteous than we really are? Are we like Ananias and Sapphira who want to appear as if we were giving all and yet we're holding back much? May it not be for us. The Lord tells us that we are to do all things knowing His eyes are upon us. And yet we move on. Not only are we to do it knowing His eyes, but we are to submit with sincerity. He says, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. When you do your work for the Lord, it means that you can look at a man square in the face and you can tell him that you have labored hard. Even when your boss comes to you and he asks you and he scrutinizes your work and you look at him and even though you gulp, even though you swallow because you're anxious, he would ask you these questions. You can look at him and say, I am obeying Christ. I'm working as hard as I possibly can. Because I'm not serving an earthly master. I'm serving the Lord. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of Yahweh move to and fro throughout the earth, that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. And the context of that is, is Judah has rebelled against God. Because they forgot that it was God's eyes who were wandering and looking upon them. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of Yahweh are in every place, watching the evil and the good. You know, we've seen that little song to Lydia. It's on our little CD. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching over the evil and the good. You know, we, we sing that to our children. We need to sing it to ourselves. God is watching. God is mindful. Paul gives us this to command so that we might chop down the struggles of our heart. How are you doing? How are you doing in your workplace? How are you doing with your own diligence and your own faithfulness? Are you discontent? Are you grumbling? Are you tired of your bosses? 
tired of your coworkers, if only this, if only that, if only my boss would treat me this way. In some ways, this text will free you this morning. It will cause you to be mindful that your king is Christ, that you really only have one master. If Christ demands the willful subjection of slaves who are unfairly treated, what is your excuse? What is your excuse to grumble in your hearts about all the work you have to do, about all the unfair things your boss or your teacher or your parents make you do? Christ will not hear your excuses. He wants to hear and see your obedience. Thomas Watson said this. He said, True obedience of faith is a cheerful obedience. Do you look upon God's commands as a burden or a privilege? Do you look upon God's commands as an iron fetter around your leg or as a gold chain around your neck? What an incredible statement. The commands of God are like a precious gold chain with costly jewels adorned around your neck. That is our motivation this morning to obey, knowing the Lord is watching, knowing the Lord will reward. And that leads us to our second point really this morning. Obey with judgment in view. This is, this is the motivation for our obedience. Obey with judgment in view. He says, knowing that from the Lord, verse 24, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Knowing that is the Lord. This is a knowledge. This is the cause of our zealous life. This is the cause to live zeal, zealously in your mundane lives, in my mundane life knowing that from the Lord you will receive. And some key words here. Receive means to get what is due, to get what you deserve. Here is the promise that God's standard of judgment is perfect and you will get exactly what you deserve. You will receive the reward, the retribution. It's that which is given back in return for what you have given. And then he says the inheritance. This word defines what kind of retribution you are going to get. For the Christian it is not condemnation, but an evaluation. It is not hell to pay, but it's rewards to be given. So it is a desirable retribution. It's desirable and that it should be what you are seeking to gain. So let me ask you again this morning. Is the reward of Christ the, the inheritance that you long for? This motivates us to understand that we're working for more than a paycheck. We're working for more than uh, you know, moving up the corporate ladder. That we are to be again motivated by the judgment of God. I want to remind you this morning that the reality of judgment is a good thing. Christian, have you thought about what life would be like if you did not know about the judgment seat of Christ? Have you asked yourself, what would my Christian life be if I did not know I was going to be judged? You do know because you used to live that way. All unbelievers live as if there is no judgment. All unbelievers live as if there was no end, as if there was no scrutiny, as if there was no final walk through the purging fires of God. That is how the unbeliever lives. Men and women think that accountability is something that you get at H&R Block. They know nothing of the standing before God whose eyes will gaze into their souls and whose word will pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. For the Christian, the knowledge of judgment is a great blessing. For it is divine stimulation which motivates us to live the now in light of the then. To live the heavenly life in an earthly context. To live for Christ of heaven as if He were here on earth next to us. Thomas Watson said this, he said, meditate much upon the judgment, the day of judgment. Feathers swim upon the water, but gold sinks into it. Likewise, light, fluffy Christians float through life in vanity. They mind not the day of judgment, but weighty Christians sink deep into the thoughts of God's judgment. The judgment seat of Christ pushes us to labor and to be mindful of His reward and His return. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we each one may be recompensed for His deeds in the body according to what He has done, whether good or bad. I 
And Lord, grant you and I this morning maturity to see that you are no longer children, that you are mature men and women, that you are going to stand before the King of glory. Paul motivates us in verse 25 as he moves on. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. He just continues to to pound this into us. You will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and now without partiality. The wrongdoer will receive retribution. He will receive payback for his work. Now, it's the simple things at work that distract us. They might seem as they might seem like distractions, uh, surfing the web, you know, extended lunch break, uh, spending more time talking with coworkers rather than working. Those might seem just like areas of, of lack of oversight, but the Bible really says that it's sin. For you and I not to work diligently, not to be faithful in the tasks which we have given, the Bible says that that's sinful. And really, what that shows if I might point it to you this way, it shows again our lack of understanding that there really is no difference between the sacred and the secular. What goes for me on Sunday mornings, what goes for me throughout the work, throughout the week, you know, for Jason, for James, it's the same standard. If I study and prepare half an hour for a sermon, and I stand up here this morning, and I preach a ten minute sermon, and I met with like two people during the week, and I prayed for like one person, I would be shortchanging you. I would be defrauding. I would be stealing to take my full paycheck and yet to preach a 10-minute sermon and to meet with CCF you know, once a month. I would be stealing from the hand of God, and you guys would know it. And it's the same for you. You are stealing from the hand of God if you are not faithful at the workplace. You are stealing from the hand of God if you are spending an over amount of time on the internet or even for your own personal things. The Bible says that's wrong. And God motivates you and I to live out. And I think that's why this is so important for us this morning. You know, all the commands of even submitting to your parents and even the commands to be submissive to husbands and wives, more than any other place, you spend your life and expend your life in the workplace. You spend more time with your boss than maybe even with your own wife. You spend more time in the workplace with co-workers than you do at home with your own children. This is where you are living out the Christian life. More than all the judgment that was going to be scrutinized how you treated your parents, more than all the time you have spent you know, with your family, it's going to be, right now, your time at the workplace. That is where you spend most of your Christian life. Paul says there is no partiality for God's judgment. There is no discrepancy between the sacred and the secular. And I would add this morning that if, if you are lax at work, then you're lax in the church. If you are unfaithful at work, then it is, is carrying over to unfaithfulness in the congregation, to unfaithfulness in ministry. The Apostle Paul says there is no partiality with God. Literally, that phrase means that there is no respect of persons. God is not a respecter of persons. God does not show more favor to some Christians than He does to others. The holy standard of God is the same for all. In the ancient of days, one could be shown respect according to who he was or according to how uh, the authority felt about him. In other words, if a subject came in before the king, before some uh, master, and he could bow down before the king, and even if he was uh, not not the best slave or the best servant, if the master had favoritism in his heart, he would look up, he would look to that servant, and he would walk up to him, and he would take his hand down, and he would lift his chin up and point his face into his master to show him that he had favoritism towards that servant. The Bible says, God will not show us that sort of favoritism. He will not look upon me and my laxness and show me more favoritism than when He will look upon any of you. But He will scrutinize all of us the same. That is why 1 Corinthians 3 
is in some ways a trembling text. For Paul says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is in Jesus Christ. Now if a man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or he builds with wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show its work. It is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And I picture in my own mind, as I think about the judgment, I picture maybe perhaps a fiery gate, a fiery door. And the saints are lined up before this gate, each preparing to to walk through it. They walk through this flaming gate, and as we walk through it, it is a purging fire. No man is able to no man is able to pass through it. No man is able to be to stay alive through it, except for the man who has Jesus Christ as his shield. And even for the Christian, he walks through this this blazing gate, this blazing door. And the fire swoops around him and it consumes him. And it purges him of all earth and all dust. It purges him of all things that were done for self rather than for Christ. The Apostle Paul says that if you build with with gold and silver and precious stones, it will remain. But if you build with wood and earthen things, it will perish, it will be consumed. So build on Christ. Do your earthly work in the heavenly context. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. You know, even for me this morning, it must be the judgment seat of Christ that motivates me. James said it. You know, let not many of you become teachers. You will incur a stricter judgment. Maybe the gate for the preachers and teachers of God's Word is even a more furious flame. I don't know. But that is what must motivate me this morning. That is what must motivate Jason every week, week in and week out. That is what must motivate every man who stands before another man and preaches the Word of God. I cannot stand before you with any other motive. And if, and if half the congregation falls asleep because of the heat, or if half the congregation doesn't, fall, doesn't show up on Sunday morning, there's only ten people. The preacher, he must still preach as if there was ten thousand. And yet he must preach as if there was none. Save only Jesus Christ. Save Jesus Christ sitting next to you in your cubicle. Save only Jesus Christ looking over your shoulder, constantly, constantly abiding with you even if you do not want to abide with Him. It is Christ in His ever-presence, the omnipresence of the Spirit of Christ that must motivate us. If you are like me in any way, you find the ideas of motives to be so utterly elementary in concept and so difficult in controlling. Concepts are so easy to understand, but actions can be so difficult to carry out. There are many things that are conceptually easy. And yet, in the reality of they are so difficult. All the single guys walk around saying, I want to be married. It looks so easy. It looks so fun. And yet, all the married men will tell you, conceptually it looks easy. But it is a difficult thing to be faithful, to love your wife as Christ loved the church, to shepherd her, to wash her heart with the Word of God, to be faithful to your children. Concepts seem so easy. Man has mastered the actions, but is brutalized by the heart. He can control his externals, but he cannot put a rein on his motives. He can say no to adultery on the outside, but seethe as a boiling cauldron of lust on the inside. Women can appear content on the outside, but burn with envy and, and seethe with discontentment on the inside. The Bible says none of these can be controlled apart from Christ. You've heard the famous line, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA says, their line is, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You've heard that. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And you know what? They're true. They're right. Once you are a slave of sin, once you commit a sin, you are always a slave of sin. 
And yet for the Christian, that is not right. Once an alcoholic, formerly an alcoholic, the Christian must say, once an alcoholic, but freed by Christ. Once a slave of sin, but now a slave to Him. So we must not become slaves to the eyes of men. We are freed this morning from any motives that would beckon us to live for anything else other than Jesus Christ. We must do more than master the externals. The Word of God demands us to know our internal spiritual organs. Let me say that again. The Word of God demands you and I to master, to understand and to know our internal spiritual organs. We must be those who study our own heart. Not its four valves, not its many arteries, but its inner man, its deceitfulness, its covetousness, its idolatry, its discontentment. The Christian who knows little of these does not know his own heart. He thinks that he is a stable man. He thinks that he knows himself. But until one knows how deadly he is, he is waiting for disaster. Chernobyl happened because the Russians thought they had nuclear power under control. They boasted that tremendous accidents could not happen at their facility. They boasted that they were safe. That Titanic saw itself as invincible. Yes, it, and it saw its weaknesses in other ships. It had not stopped believing in icebergs, but it only saw them as relevant to other ships and not to itself. And yet you know what happened. Chernobyl exploded. The Titanic sunk. And you will sink as well unless you grasp that your heart is deceitful. You must recognize that even you, Christian, are prone to serve the eyes of men. So that is our exhortation this morning. 45 minutes of being reminded how we're to live in the workplace. 45 minutes of being reminded that there is a battle that is waging, a spiritual battle that is waging war under fluorescent lights, by the water cooler, in front of your computer. Your hard drive crashes. That's not the battle. The battle is a spiritual one where you are to live for Christ in every single context you find yourself in. Every footstep, day in and day out, in your mundane employment, living for Christ knowing that someday you will be rewarded for being faithful for your work as an employee. I want to conclude uh, with, a, with a short story that will hopefully uh, put this in perspective. All right? The title of this story is Loof. Cheesy title, but that's the title. The world was bold with living and pleasure was all around until when cursed in morbid night there came a wicked sound. A reactor melted with great heat, a dread none had suspected and with its deadly poison blast dealt death to all fleshes. Those who survived were plagued with pain and blindness to their sight. They lost their vision, all they saw was darkness, black and night. None in the world could see a thing save one last soul on earth. For at the blast he happened to be deep below the surface of the earth. When he arose up to the top and saw the death and pain, he set out to help those he could, the blind, the hurt, the lame. But as he worked and toiled and strove to serve the helpless masses, he became tired of those in need and took a new perspective. The only man on planet earth who could see a thing, Luf, for that's his name, took advantage of the blind and let his motives reign. Those whom he knew would greet him daily as he passed them by, and he would say, how do you do? Then with silent reply, would stand in front of their blind eyes and give a wicked gesture. Since none can see it, it didn't matter what he did around them. He was free to carry out his heart's desires in front of all around him. The only thing he could not do was speak his mind with freedom. For although they could not see his gestures, their ears would surely hear him. But the day came when the disease wore on and took the hearing of all men, which gave Luke freedom to live out all his wickedness within. Not only could, not only could he do what he wanted since all men's eyes were blind, 
But now his heart was free to speak its wickedness and jests. Luf cussed and swore and spoke with hatred to the blind and dumb and unleashed all his darkened heart had stored up for so long. And once while carrying out his filth before the lowly masses, the Lord appeared in front of him and Luf was flabbergasted. For he had thought he was alone, that he was the only one who could see or hear all that he did, but he had forgot one. The Lord sees all and hears all too. He cannot be escaped. He took this loof and judged him there and threw him in the lake. What would you do if you were loof and none could see or hear? Would you too choose to carry out the sin that dwells within? Remember loof next time you think that none can see or hear. Remember that though you're alone, the Lord is always near. Simple story. Reminds us of the omniscience and the omnipresence of Christ and exhorts us and leads us this morning, ushering us again to live out the mundane earthly life before the King of Kings. God, we thank you again for your reminders and for your faithfulness. Oh Lord, we come week in and week out to this little school, to Bell Intermediate. Lord, with its mundane things around us, with this little stage and its pulpit, with our little worship team. And yet, Lord, all this is done before, before You in Your sight. Lord, we are surrounded by the multitude who look upon us, by the angels who look down and, and watch the sons of men in awe at the salvation that You have granted to those who rebelled, those who who bit at your hand. And you're now calling us to live sensibly and righteously and godly before you. Oh Lord, help us this morning. Help again, I pray, that you would use these words for the next six days to sustain us until the next sermon. Lord, knowing that we need the Word of God preached week after week after week and that we ourselves need to read the Bible day after day after day because though You are ever-present, we are ever-forgetting. Though You are ever-knowing, we are ever-unknowing. Though You are ever-mindful, we are constantly needing to be reminded. Oh Lord, motivate us. Motivate us to live for Your glory. Motivate us to live for, for Christ even before this mundane life. God, thank you again for your faithfulness and for your word. And in your name we pray. Amen.